Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Thank you. Good morning. I was here, when was I here last, Tim? Was it in June? Yeah, and um, I discovered something that I hope sounds affirming. Oklahoma City is shockingly cool. You guys are... I didn't know that. Um, I I get around quite a bit. I see a lot of cities um, in my role with Alpha, even get across the pond to London. Um, I was just blown away. Um, And even yesterday, Tim and Christy were driving me around downtown, but this seems like 23rd is like the epicenter of cool, right? So apparently God knows what he's doing in putting a church community right here in the thick of it. So you guys, by association, are obviously very cool. Um, but more than that, I just love being here. I don't know if you know this. Some of you would because you were here. But before most of you filled these seats, there was a passionate crew praying into whatever God has for this time. And um, this is a very expectant community. And I just stepping into this room, I feel like I'm stepping into the flow of something God's already doing. And that's just exciting to be in those moments, in those places. I also love that I'm on this cool stage. I have four kids because four is the new two. I don't know if you knew that. Um, And uh, my second kid is my son. He is in a rock band, literally touring the country. And this is the kind of stage he'd want to be on. So I'm going to tell him I beat him to the tower stage in Oklahoma City. Uh, And as Tim said, I get to play a pretty unique role with Alpha. I've led in several different church contexts, have a huge empathy for pastors. Um, because it's a rough time to be a pastor right now, honestly, for reasons that may or may not be obvious, as the world has been very disoriented and discouraged and broken. So are a lot of churches, and so are a lot of leaders. In fact, a lot of leaders are tapping out like never before, but it's exciting to see leaders like Tim and Christy leaning in. Um, But I get a chance to not only help churches discover Alpha, but just lift heads of leaders to say, no, there's, there's more ahead of us than behind us, and God is doing something, not just in you know, this city or that city, but across our nation that is worth leaning into and partnering with together. But um, something like Alpha is needed, the kind of space where you can bring any question, uh, any hurt, any hostility, because people have a lot of those right now. You may be some people like that, that you're saying, even as you fill the sea, you're saying, man, I've just got so much unpacking of um, disorientation, discouragement, confusion, frustration towards church or faith or life. And we had a team go out about a year ago now to three different cities, uh, L.A., Memphis, and New York, just to listen to questions people are asking now. And this is a bit of a highlight reel. The, the actual questions made their way into our Alpha film series. Some of you guys know Alpha and part of Alpha. It's really a series of dinner conversations. It's very conversational, but part of it is you, you get to hear what a Christian perspective is on certain things. And um, these made their way into the film series, but this is a bit of a highlight reel that gives us a glimpse um, of, of what are the things stirring in people's hearts right now towards life, faith, and meaning. So turn your eyes to the screen. Camera speed? Sound speeds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Go ahead. Um, matter of fact, I think a question is about. It's a good question. I ask myself this all the time. Yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I wish I knew. I mean, um. I don't know. Nobody knows. I wish I knew. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, I was waiting for my son to get old enough to ask me this question. Um, yes and no, always. I do believe some things in the Bible are relevant today, not all things because the world changes every day. I think it has some good lessons and some good history and good words to put out into the world. There's some lessons in there for sure. It's, it's written very majestically. Yeah, I think it's bull I don't really think so anymore. I'm iffy on the Bible because I know that it's been translated so many times. I do think that being good neighbors is um, is definitely relevant in this day and age. Historical track record of who God is and who Jesus is. But I think that finding like the faith within yourself is more important than reading a book that was written 2,000 years ago. A nice guy from the Middle East. Aw, that's a cool dude. He's a real person. I do not believe he was white or blonde or blue-eyed. Like to me or just... My Lord and my Savior. I guess he's a character in the Bible. He gets really mad when people are like, not cool. That's him, that's Jesus. In my mind, he was someone who had strong beliefs. He was trying to do something good. The perfect example of what we should be, what we should strive to be. I think Jesus is somebody that gives people hope. But if what it is to be true, what he did, I mean, he was a great person. The faith that we might have in what a good human being is. You know, he's, he's the way that gets you there, right? Yes. Sometimes talking to friends and family or your therapist just isn't enough. <laughs> I, I tend to pray most when I feel desperate. I pray every day. Hardships definitely lead me to pray. It's funny, God, that I only come to you when I do something wrong. Do not pray to a God that does not hear me. Tough times, mostly. Um, it, gets, it gets frustrating when you pray and nothing does happen. I told you I'm iffy. If he's out there, I'll try anything. I pray often. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't pray anymore, unfortunately. What was your thought process when creating, like, bugs? <laughs> First of all, I would have several questions for God. <laughs> I'd be like, do you have more time? Why can't we all just coexist? But it, what, what, is, what is with the the narcissism and the wars and, and all the conflict. Like, Why is empathy not easy to access? I feel like New Yorkers do this thing where they just look up and they go, you know, like, why, why now? Where have you been? If there is anybody there that's listening, um, can you give me some sort of indication that everything's gonna be fine? Connection, whether it's to yourself or to a thing or a passion. I think interaction, it's to belong to something. Something, a little thing, a dog loving you, that's enough, you know? Uh, to be seen, to be held. Yeah, I think she, yeah, I agree with her. I think belonging, yeah. Connection. Compassion, empathy, love. Love, I think it's love. So I think we search for that in so many different things. 
And once we find that, it's just a beautiful thing. It's so powerful to hear some of those questions. I've watched that video a bunch of times. The one that always gets me is, if there's somebody out there, can they give me some indication that it's going to be okay? And maybe even some of you are carrying that question today. But what's obvious from that video, and, and probably from a lot of the people we interact with beyond church gatherings, is there's no lack of honest, compelling, sometimes heartbreaking questions um, that people are carrying, and they need a place to bring them. And I know that's Tim and Christy and the team's heart for this church is to be that kind of place and discover that God actually does have answers. I grew up in the church. I don't know if you grew up in the church. I grew up like from the time that it was flannel graphs, which nobody here would know about flannel graphs. I'm just that old. This was way before iPads and TV screens. You just moved little felt things along and um, watch Bible stories <laughs> transpire in compelling ways. But I grew up in all that and never felt like church was a place where I could bring my questions. I felt like I was supposed to check those at the door and then come in and learn the answers, sing the answers, take notes on the answers, memorize the answers. And there's nothing wrong with answers. I mean, truth is such an incredible gift. But sometimes we need places to bring the questions. And even having the chance now to have led a couple churches, both planted and pastored several different communities in Orange County, um, I've noticed how easy it is to drift to just one-way conversations like we're even having right now. And that's what I've loved about Alpha, the space it creates. Um, in churches, you know, thousands of churches across the world, I think there's about 30 million people that have been on the Alpha course now um, through the last 30 years, which is incredible. Um, and even to see a generation that many of you represent that have so many questions, finding that safe space to bring it all is a gift. Um, it's funny, I have a friend that says it's really good alpha when the F-bombs start flying. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that yet on alpha, but no, that's the, that's the bullseye there, was it, when it's that safe. Um, but today, what I also want to recognize is, is there's something about a table to bring questions to and to bring our lives to that matters. And obviously, tables are a big part of alpha. There's a meal that's part of every alpha. Um, but we also see just in the life of Jesus how significant tables are in the life and ministry of Jesus. There's a great book called A Meal with Jesus, or it's either, I think it's Meals with Jesus, named a guy, a guy named Tim Chester, a, a, a British theologian. Tim Chester wrote this book, and basically the thesis is this, that most of Jesus' ministry, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, is like Jesus on the way to a meal, Jesus out a meal, Jesus leaving a meal, a whole lot of tables and meals. And a few quotes from this book. Tim Chester suggests the meals of Jesus are a window into his message of grace and the way it defines his community and his mission. He goes on to say the table fellowship of Jesus with its ethic of grace rather than reciprocity was creating a new countercultural society in the midst of the empire. Behaviors Jesus demands would collapse the distance between rich and poor, insider and outsider. That's pretty radical stuff. And it's exciting to realize how something as simple as a table was a space and a tool that Jesus could use to, to see divides collapsed between haves and have-nots and the, the elite and, and those kind of in, in the dust of ground level. And today we're going to see something like that in the scripture we're going to look at. 
And as we read this story out of Luke chapter 7, I want to state the obvious. What this story is about is so much more than we have time to get into, but it's really about the power of radical forgiveness and the overwhelming gratitude that flows out of that radical forgiveness, gratitude as its response. But I'm going to have, have us take a slightly different perspective on this story that involves tables and, and how Jesus works around tables. So let's do this. Let's first of all just invite Jesus to this table. We're gathered here as um, extended family, grateful to be a guest in this family today, and we don't have a meal. I, I'm sure there's some good meals coming. It looks like there's no lack of good meals on 23rd Street, um, but as we are gathered pre-meal, we just want to gather expectantly. And can we just even open our hands right now? There's something about the physical yes of our open hands. And I do say, Lord, would, would you meet us here in this moment? I thank you for the ways that's already happening. You're already speaking. You are uh, lifting heads, opening hearts. But we just thank you for the gift of your story, of this timeless truth of who you are and what you do to set people free. And we're people that want to be set free today. We want to receive whatever gifts you have to give. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray expectantly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have Bibles, um, turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And I'm going to read this whole passage through, and then we'll just make some sense of it together. Uh, in many Bibles, I know the NIV, there's sort of a subheading over this chapter, which obviously wasn't part of the original text. It says, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Can I make maybe an obvious point? All women are sinful and all men probably more sinful. So it's not, you know, we're, we're all sinners in need of grace. And this is a particular woman with, with a reputation for a certain sin. But um, we all find ourselves in that reality. But it begins in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with them, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus tells the story. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Let me repeat that again. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. 
But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. What a beautiful story. And again, there's so much we can unpack here. And I feel like I'm sort of missing the main point of, wow, the, the beauty and freedom and power of the forgiveness of Jesus and, and what it looks like to respond to that with, with incredible gratitude. But let me just unpack a little bit of the setting of what's happening. So you have this Pharisee. Some of us would know the Pharisees in this time are sort of the, the religious elite, the religious, religious power brokers of Jewish culture. And this particular Pharisee is named Simon. And he's hosting a dinner party, and seats are going to be reserved for the elite as well. I mean, this is a tough ticket to get as far as a seat to. But in this time and culture, dinners were often served in more of a courtyard setting, open air, warm nights. And often other people would come around these dinner parties because they were more than just having a meal. They are more than just getting food and bodies. It was about an experience. It was about a long, drawn-out conversation. And often what would happen is they bring somebody, sort of a thought leader in to, to provoke that conversation. I was thinking it'd be the equivalent if like Tim and Christy were saying, hey, we're going to have here in the tower tonight a dinner for 10 featuring Elon Musk. Let's say Elon Musk is going to be at the table sharing his thoughts on life and faith and crazy stuff. Now, I'm guessing some of you, even if you couldn't get a seat at the table, would drift in just to hear what's going on. You'd be curious as to what's Elon Musk going to say and what questions are going to be put on the table. And, and so there would be an open invitation for others to come in. This was before Netflix and before PlayStation and, you know, all these other entertainment forms. This is, this is prime time right here. And Jesus is the Elon Musk in, in this scenario. He is the provocative thought leader. People don't know what to make of Jesus. You know, is he a rabbi? Is he a prophet? Is he a heretic? Is he a rebel, a revolutionary? But they want to hear what he has to say because he's creating a stir wherever he goes. Now, in the story, Simon is really one of two seekers. The challenge with Simon is it's, it's pretty clear he's seeking with his head. There's this intellectual wrestling that he's equating to, to seeking, but, but it never makes its way down to his heart. But Jesus says yes to show up because Jesus knows that good things happen at tables that he shows up to. And uh, as I said earlier, you know, Tim Chester makes this case. This was sort of his M.O. Jesus says that himself right before the passage we read in Luke 7, 34. Jesus says about himself, the son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking. That's part of the ways he, he's rolling and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And now we're, we're not reading that Jesus was a glutton or a drunkard, but we are reading that he was doing enough party life, you know, and showing up with enough disreputable people that he was getting a bit of a reputation. That's because there, were very, there was very rarely a table he wouldn't show up to. And it so often seems to happen when Jesus showed up at tables, things went off script. When Jesus is at the table, you need to expect the unexpected. Now, when you were at the table in this time, in this culture, you didn't sit on a seat like we do. You, you would lie down. You would recline. That's what the passage says. 
Some of you guys have seen pictures of this. Maybe some of you participated in sort of the, the Middle Eastern vibes where you're laying down and your feet are out behind you and you sort of prop yourself up with one hand, eat food with another as course after course comes. Again, this is a long, drawn-out affair. So that's what's happening, and that's when we see this other seeker enter the scene. And not exactly sure when she comes in. My, my sense is she was there early because she obviously had prepared for, for what she wanted to do. Um, and again, there's a crowd gathering, and Luke sort of captures this moment in such a compelling way where we see that this woman comes in with a gift to bring. And it's in this alabaster jar, likely around her neck. And this was both a costly gift. This was in some ways part of her savings account. Now, she apparently, most scholars believe, was a prostitute, a woman of the night. So this was also maybe part of her profession. But she has decided that she wants to offer this in whatever way she can to Jesus. And so she's had some past encounter with Jesus, whether it was from afar, whether up close. But there's something that's drawing her in. And some sort of response, some sort of sacrifice seems obvious. And as she makes her approach, this likely catches the attention of the crowd because, again, she has quite the reputation in town. But she's determined. She is undaunted as she kneels at the feet of Jesus. She kneels to feet that should have already been clean. And we read in Jesus' response to Simon at the end of that passage, Simon had missed three like really key hospitality protocols. The first one is he, he didn't kiss Jesus on the way in. That would have been culturally just the first thing you do with an honored guest is give them a kiss. The second thing is Jesus didn't have his feet washed. That would be the job of the lowest of servants. But, you know, this is a time when everybody's walking in sandals or bare feet and muddy, dusty ground with animal manure. And so you'd always take care of that piece before the table was sort of convened and that piece was missed. And then finally, um, typically the, the hair of honored guests would be anointed with some sort of perfume or oil, just sort of refreshing them, preparing them for the meal. All of these steps, for whatever reason, have been missed. Jesus has been dishonored already in this gathering, but this woman, this stranger, makes up for it in these remarkable ways. Because she bends down, and the picture that's painted is that as she bends down, she can't stop weeping. It's not just a few tears. It's like the floodgates have opened. And somehow that becomes the, the source of the water to wash his feet. Her gratitude becomes the wellspring of this act of worship, which requires unthinkable, courageous vulnerability. And what's more, in this time, for a woman just to touch a man in this unsolicited way would be scandalous. And what's even more is she unbinds her hair and uncovers her head. In this culture, that's the equivalent, some theologians say, of going topless in this moment. So all of this is just so um, shocking. I mean, obviously you can imagine as this is a room full of observers, a few people around the table watching, but she's determined to see it through. And she kisses his feet, which are no doubt dirty, road-worn, and she opens up her bottle of perfume, breaks it, because that likely was a one-time use. She just can't dole out a little bit. It's got to go all in. And again, it's a costly gift for someone she wants to honor deeply. And Simon's reaction, the Pharisee's reaction, is, is judgment. 
Again, in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know. He's touching him. And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. But Jesus, because he's Jesus, reads his mind. That's what's fascinating is he's thinking this to himself, and Jesus responds to his thought to himself and calls out his lack of hospitality as someone who saw himself above the need for what Jesus truly had to offer him and contrasted it with this woman's radical hospitality. Who was, she was desperate to receive whatever validation, whatever love, whatever forgiveness Jesus had to give. And one quick point is this, the more aware and honest we are about our need for forgiveness, the more capable we are of actually receiving it. As I mentioned already, this passage, among other things, is just a picture of beautiful, overwhelming gratitude. This woman had somehow discovered and laid hold of the grace, the unmerited favor, and freedom from this rap sheet she was carrying from her past in the words, the way, the power, the love of Jesus. Woman, your sins are forgiven. This is likely something she'd already somehow begun to believe. I, I just believe that's what must have gotten her there. She'd heard these words, whether she was hearing them from a distance or had a past encounter. But here she is, humbled, ready, grateful, and positioned for even more. And that's what's beautiful, too. We'll talk about this, is, is she comes to somehow pay Jesus back. She actually positions herself to even receive more. And I know I'm somebody that needs to know my sins are forgiven and reclaim that and recalibrate to that over and over and over again. And we just see the beauty of that playing out here. Now, there's a lot more we can unpack. But for today, I'd love to back away from this story and just ask a pretty simple question. And the question is this. What's happening here that could happen at any table that we invite Jesus to? Because we live as people that are around tables all the time. We're in moments all the time where we could just kind of cruise through them and, and miss opportunities, or we can be intentional about saying, no, we want Jesus to show up here as well. What happens at tables that Jesus shows up to? And I have three simple points, but the first question is this, or statement is this, when Jesus is at the table, you come as you are. You get to show up as you really are, not as you wish you were. You know, I found out um, a few weeks ago that I'm going to a wedding. I knew I was going to the wedding. I found out it's a black tie wedding, and apparently that doesn't mean you wear a black tie. Do you know that? Like, you'd think, okay, I wear a black tie. No, it's like you, there's some other next-level dress code that I'm already stressed out about, quite honestly. I was asking my wife, do I have something? She's like, oh, I don't know. We might need to borrow or rent. Or, and, and it's just, it's paralyzing because it's like, okay, I, I can't show up as I am. I've got to show up as some really cleaned-up, dressed-up version of me. And over and over again, we see that Jesus has little interest or patience for black tie affairs. In fact, in one of his parables, he's describing this lavish, extravagant feast being presented. And it turns out, he's like, you know, the people I want there are the least likely, the worst dressed, the furthest out. They're the ones I want at those tables. And Jesus is, is most compelled by tables to bring together people who wouldn't normally culturally converge. It's what Tim Chester wrote, when those divides collapse, that's what Jesus gets excited about, and that happens at tables, especially those who are seeking him in honest ways. Now, I've had a chance to lead a couple churches in uh, Orange County 
uh, that were larger. But we, when I took this role with Alpha, it kind of gave my wife and I a chance to step into a different adventure of trying this whole house church thing out. I had a friend that was on a, the journey a few years ahead of us, and he was sort of daring us, going, man, you guys should try this. And for us, it was a whole new world because it was reorienting from like pulpits and seats and sermons and epic worship sets to dinner tables, coffee tables, kids, mess, conversations. But we gave it a go, and it was really several years of it were some of the most powerful transformative times in our life of just relearning church in the small. But what happened around these tables was um, people began to show up that wouldn't have necessarily shown up in church. Now, this didn't happen all the time, but sometimes friends of friends would be curious to be at a dinner or they wouldn't necessarily sit in a Sunday morning seat. And there was a couple that came in that um, definitely checked those boxes. They didn't have any context for faith. I think the guy had come out of a cult, quite honestly, and had he was probably trying to evangelize us towards some different God and different way of life. But um, he became really curious about Christianity, but knew nothing. I loved on the Alpha video how the guy in the video was saying, you know, he was discovering who the Holy Spirit was. That's exactly what this kid Alex said. He's like, who is this Holy Spirit? What does he do? Sounds kind of weird, but was super compelling. And so we kept having all these conversations and they were always the most people, people most likely to blow up a conversation with the wrong question or some crazy perspective. And on the front end of this journey with them, it just, it just was constantly fighting a little bit of uh, irritation, a little bit of, um, just apprehension of how are things going to go. But over time, we just begin to see how beautiful it was to have them in the conversation because they brought honest questions, honest perspective that a lot of us that had been so seasoned in the church were just kind of conditioned towards the right answers. And it really convicted all of us, but it was so beautiful as they were able to come as they are to watch them fall in love with Jesus and experience the forgiveness and even the freedom that's being described in this passage. And they got to the point where they wanted to be baptized. And it was so funny because we had a, a backyard pool that we did baptisms in. Again, this is a house church. So we've got like little kids and teenagers and, you know, all generations represented. And this, this young woman shows up for baptism in a bikini that in Huntington Beach, which is 10 minutes from my house, this would not be out of place. Quite honestly, it'd be quite common. But at a baptismal service, pretty shocking, pretty scandalous. I mean, the eyes of some of the 12-year-old guys were like saucers, you know, and mouths, whoa. And, uh, and even me, I was baptizing her, trying to figure out where do I touch her to bring her under the water. But I just say that to say at the same time, it was so beautiful because she didn't know the protocols. And it's so exciting when tables and moments in the life of a church can be places where people can just come as they are. And uh, I live in a county, honestly, um, in a culture that's so obsessed with perfection. It's just, it's ridiculous. And people drive these crazy cars and live in crazy houses, neither of which they can really afford. But nobody wants to let anybody in close. It's like we want to keep people at this happy, shiny, glossy distance. And Jesus loves to get raw and real and draw people in as they are. And that's something we discovered in powerful ways. And you know, the, the, the call to Simon from Jesus, do you see this woman? I just feel like is just one of those prophetic lines in this passage because Jesus saw her for who she really was and welcomed her for who she really was. It was in a, and we live in a world where, man, that is so rare. 
when, when people feel, first of all, free to be who they are, and, and second of all, feel seen for who they are, not who they should be. Another thing that happens when Jesus is at the table is not only do you come as you are, but you get to bring what you have. You bring what you have. You know, one of the rules of our house church over these years was um, nobody comes empty-handed. Even guests, we'd encourage them to bring something. Some of that had to do with the meals. We did potlucks. Potluck, potlucks were sort of brought back to glory. And uh, anybody grew up with potlucks in church? I mean, that used to be a thing. And, and uh, we made it a thing again, and it led to all sorts of creative meals. We did, like, breakfast for dinner. We did, uh, you know, comfort foods or foods of the nations. Um, but the idea was bring something to add to the table. Now, that doesn't always go right. You know, one of the times that's sort of legendary in our house church experiment was somebody was assigned to bring communion elements. We'd always end our meals in this time of communion, and they grabbed off their shelf not crackers, but wasabi crackers. Um, Trader Joe's wasabi crackers. And in, in these house church moments, the kids love communion because it's one more chance to eat. Um, and so kids would always circle up first and want to be served first. And the second those wasabi crackers touched these kids' lips, lips, it was like all something broke loose. Um, and so bringing what you have doesn't always work out, but, but the principle is powerful, not just in the food we bring, but, but whatever we bring into these moments, Jesus can leverage. And two things we begin to realize and even talk to our leaders about that we could always bring. We could always bring something we're thankful for, a way that God has shown up, and we could always bring something we're desperate for. <laughs> What's a way we need the God sh to show up? Both gratitude and brokenness. And even those two things at play can change a table. They can change a moment when people feel this freedom to go, I'm bringing something that's, that's out of my life, my week, uh, my reality. And in raw, vulnerable, real ways, I'm willing to, to add this to the table, into the moment. And Jesus loves it when people bring what they have. But the final point is this. When Jesus is at the table, you leave with more. You always leave with more than you came in with, if you're ready to receive. Now, more what? Well, you never know until you show up. I love, is it Harvey? Your, your name's Harvey, right? What's up, man? He, he was one of the first people that said hi to Tim and I this morning. And Tim said, how you doing, Harvey? And Harvey said, I'm here. <laughs> and I love that because it's like, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't here that should be here. But you're here and there's something about just saying, I'm here. And I'm ready. And, and I'm ready to receive something that I may not even know that I need yet. And Jesus loves that posture because you can't outgive Jesus. And we see this on display in this passage because this woman comes with this costly, courageous gift to bring to Jesus. But do you realize she, she leaves with more than she came in with? She'd already had some sense of new beginnings, some, some sense of freedom, but then he publicly declares her forgiven in front of all of her judges, in front of all these people that are looking down on her, and she gets to walk out in peace, in wholeness, in freedom. So you can't outgive Jesus. When we invite Jesus to the table, he wants to give gifts through his spirit. And I love even this morning, I think, Tim, you were praying for me right down here, and you're just praying that as I poured something out that I'd be filled up. And I love that picture in the passage is we pour ourselves out. Worship is this act of pouring our hearts out, pouring our, our adoration out, pouring our, you know, need out. But God will always refill. And 
to the point of more than we had when we started. And I, I've seen this so many times. I, I love this one story. There's a friend of mine, or two friends of mine, that planted a church in Honolulu in the Arts District. It kind of probably is a lot like 23rd Street. It's very creative, artsy. They really wanted to go after young creatives, um, filmmakers, artists, models, and their whole church planting strategy, this was several years ago, was to um, throw great meals and parties. So they would do every other week, I think, have these, these dinner tables that were lavish and great food and great drink, and they started putting invites out, and people started showing up. And they noticed that in the midst of dozens of creatives that would show up, this one young woman showed up. She was a model, um, I'm imagining, very beautiful, and, but she would show up at these parties, and she wouldn't eat. And, and Christine, uh, one of the pastors, was observing this, but then what was strange is as she got ready to leave, she would always step up to the buffet. You know, they'd have this amazing spread of food, and she would take out a little Tupperware container and stick some food in the Tupperware container and leave with it. And after watching this happen a few times, Kevin and Christine approached her, and, and they said, hey, we've noticed you haven't been eating. First of all, we have so much food. <laughs> we have lots extra that, you know, not only can you eat, but, but we also noticed you were taking some away. Can we give you more? They're just trying to be hospitable. And her answer um, was so beautiful. She said, oh, oh, thank you. She goes, when I'm here, I'm just so filled up by being in this place, feeling the love and acceptance here that I don't need to eat. She goes, I bring the food home to remember what that tasted like, to remember the taste of being seen and known and loved. So she was trying to sort of hold on, savor the experience that she had. And there was something about that meal, about that space, about those moments that allowed her to receive more every time that she had come with. And today, um, as we come in for a landing, first of all, Jesus does, does great things at tables, and so make sure you welcome him to your tables. Uh, I'm, I'm on this really interesting journey, so I've stepped back in to lead a church that I planted many years ago. Um, it used to be a larger church, for sure. Um, it's diminished like a lot of churches have, but we're sort of in reboot right now, and we wanted to help reboot the church around tables. And so we came up with this crazy idea of a thousand tables. In fact, I think we have some pictures of this. There's this wall as you walk in. This is Rock Harbor, and you'll see there's this thousand table walls, and you can go through these pictures, and you'll see that what you do is you host a table moment, have a conversation, have a meal, pray before, during, after, take a selfie, send it to an email address, and then on Sunday mornings, those pictures show up, and you sign them and stick them on the wall. And the goal is 1,000, which is pretty God-sized because the church is about 1,000 people right now. Um, but we're about 600 in and on our way through the summer, and it really is beginning to change our culture. It's not just about getting to that number. It's about subverting, again, in, in Orange County, this whole culture of perfection and entertainment versus honest, real, raw hospitality. But it's just been so fun to hear story after story after story of, of what God's doing at tables when we invite him to show up with us. It's, it's remarkable. And so I just practically encourage some of you to do that. You know, Romans 12, 13 says, share with, Lord's people, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Very simple instructions. But that word hospitality, most of you guys know, combines the Greek words uh, Phylos and xenos, so love for the stranger. And practice in the Greek just means work really hard with focus and determination. 
And so in, in two words, there's a pretty compelling, daunting call to say, man, is the people of God, this is who we are. People that are practicing, leaning in to moments where people on the outside feel loved coming in. And tables are such beautiful spaces to do that. Um, I feel like for others of you, as we talk about maybe even helping host those experiences, there is a courage required just to show up. And I want to affirm, some of you even being here today, more than anybody in the room would ever know, it just took courage to show up. And I just want to say, would you keep showing up and bring your full self? Remember that when Jesus hosts the table, we get to come as we are, not as we should be. And when Jesus hosts the table, we have something to bring and to trust that, that as you're in this time when this church, like so many churches, are being reconnected in community. I, I've talked to pastors all the time, and, and there just was such a radical disconnection that happened in church communities. And this is a time when it's going to take leaning in. And for some of you, you may not be a leader, you may not be the, the king or queen of hospitality, but just showing up and trusting you have something to bring is key. And then for all of us, just to expectantly lean in to the reality that we can't outgive Jesus. And even today, I, I want to ask that you would stand up. And um, I think, is it Megan? Is that right? Um, on the keys, she's going to come up. And before we sing a song, I want to encourage you, we took this posture once before, but would you open your hands? And by the way, just to state the obvious, um, Alpha is such a great place to show up at a table. And for some of you today, um, you have friends that this church experience wouldn't be their first step into community. But Alpha is designed to be that place that is the safest place to bring any question, hurt, hostility. But some of you are those people and just encourage you to check it out. But we don't want to miss what God has for us today. And again, there's something about this open hands, yes to God. And there's, there's something cool that happens when we open our hands because first of all, we're releasing something, we're offering something. As we saw in this passage, we're, we're pouring out something of us. And I encourage you to do that right now. And it may be, um, for some of you, the reluctance to step in to being known. Uh, maybe you feel like you're somebody that's carrying a reputation with me, you, with you that you just can't shake. Um, I think for some of you, it's just maybe even a call to take the lead in tables and hospitality and that this is a spiritual gift that God wants to awaken in the church in this moment. For some of you today, it's just saying yes to your house, your workspace, part of your life and rhythms being given towards creating these kind of spaces. So that's you, just as you open your hands, just say yes to that. And very practically today, there's some of you, I just, as I was driving in this morning, just, you just need to hear that you can lay down um, chains of guilt, of shame, of condemnation that are actually broken. You just need to let, lay them down because Jesus declares you forgiven. Um, as much as the woman 2,000 years ago, he's saying, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Because that's what he does. That's the gift that he delights in giving. And he wants you to know that word is for you. So with our hands open, we just say, Lord, yes to what we need to lay down and what we need to lay hold of. The call to host tables, the call to show up at tables, the call to leave today in peace 
and freedom that can only be found in the forgiveness you have to offer us. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you receive the gift of our lives poured out, ready to be refilled. Thank you, Jesus, that you see us, you know us, you delight in us, and you're committed to partnering with us, that you don't just do this around us, you want to do this through us. And I pray, finally this morning, there would just be the gift of hospitality activated in this community uniquely. Um, men and women across this room right now just receiving a, a commission to be your hosts at many tables to come. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.